Hello, Gratians. A big thank you to my friend, Dr. Wilson, for the honor of speaking to you on this Missions Unfazed weekend. We're living in unprecedented times, but the work of missions continues unabated. Great things are happening right across the world. Missionaries are quite used to hardships and obstacles, and they've adapted their ministry to the times and context. And here's an important introductory point. Methods change, but the call to missions remains unchanged. In other words, the way we do missions changes from time to time, depending on what's happening in the world at the time. But the compelling call to missions is the same. And here's another important point. It's not that God's church has a mission. It's that God's mission has a church. And the more we are aligned with God's mission, the more we are aligned with God's will and heart. So we must not be phased by what is happening in our world, but refocus our lives around God's mission. Let me begin the message itself. All through Jesus' ministry, the theme of God's heart for the lost, to return to him, was expounded, illustrated and applied. In Luke 15 is a cluster of three parables, namely the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son, all vividly descriptive of God's loving, longing and intense search for lost humanity. In Matthew 18 verse 11, Jesus said, The Son of Man came to save what was lost. His entire ministry was a demonstration and authentication of his good news as he went about doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil. And with the future in focus, during three and a half years of public ministry, Jesus trained an unlikely group of chosen men how to perpetuate his ministry after his suffering, death and resurrection. And prior to his ascension, Jesus commanded his believers to boldly take this message of good news beyond their locality, culture, region and nation. And then God the Father and his ascended Son sent the Holy Spirit to empower the newly born again apostles and subsequent generations of believers with power to spread the gospel. Therefore, we have a clear message Jesus. And as we'll see, we also have a clear mandate and mission when Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples. But my question today is, what motivates us for missions? Why should we remain unfazed? And there are four compelling reasons why we should be involved in missions. And so my title today is Four compelling reasons for missions. So what motivates us? Number one, the gospel's inherent power. Firstly, an implicit belief in the gospel's inherent power. In Romans 1.16, Paul declared, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Paul wrote how he is compelled to preach the gospel in Rome. Rome 
was intimidating. It was the symbol of imperial pride and power. People uh, spoke of it with awe. Everybody hoped to visit Rome once in their lifetime in order to look, stare and wonder. But who is this Paul? According to tradition, he was an ugly little man with beetle brows, bandy legs, a bald pate, a hooked nose, bad eyesight and no speaking skills. But who is this guy who doesn't want to go to Rome as a tourist, but as an evangelist? Who does this guy think he is that he would have a message that Rome needed to listen to? Wouldn't he be wiser to stay away before he gets laughed at, scorned, rejected and thrown out? But no, Paul is filled with an incredible confidence. And he'd been chased out of, out, of, uh, out of Thessalonica, he'd been imprisoned in Philippi, he'd been smuggled out of Berea, he had been laughed out of Athens. In, in Corinth, his message has been belittled as absolute foolishness. And when there would have been very good reasons to be reluctant, ashamed or embarrassed, he is not hesitant, ashamed or embarrassed. On the contrary, he is compelled to bring this life-changing message to the most formidable city of his day. And what gave him such confidence? In his own words, he wrote, The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now remember that. In essence, the gospel is the good news about Jesus. It is not just a philosophy. It's about a person. It's not just about a way to God. It's about the way to God. It's about God sending his son, Jesus. It's all about Jesus' message of life. It's about Jesus' suffering. It's about Jesus' death as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. It is about his resurrection. It's about his authority to forgive sins. It's about a new life through him, abundant life. It's about a hope and a future, spending eternity with him in heaven. And this gospel, he wrote, is the power of God. The gospel is not just advice to people, it is a message that sets people free. Paul does not say that the gospel brings power, but it is power, and God's power at that. And when the gospel is preached, it is not simply words being spoken, it is the power of God at work. And when the gospel enters anyone's life, it is as though the very fire of God has come upon them. And this power is not aimless, its purpose is salvation. In other words, this life-changing power results in people being saved. Now, salvation is a word that encapsulates all of the blessings that come to us when we give our life to Jesus, such as being justified before God, made righteous by God, adopted into his family, redeemed or ransomed by our sin by Jesus' sacrifice, reconciled to God, baptized into his body, the living community known as the church, the certainty of future resurrection to eternal life. This is what God's power can accomplish. But salvation also means that we are saved and delivered from wrath, hostility to God, alienation from God, sin, being lost, 
the futility and empty way of life, the yoke of slavery, demon possession, sickness, danger, the corrupt generation. And when this powerful, life-changing message invades our life, its power brings salvation at the moment of conversion and then on through our life into eternity beyond the grave. The power is that Jesus changes lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Anyone's life can be transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. This is the miracle of the gospel. The miracle of conversion is the greatest miracle. A cleansed, regenerated, transformed life is a supreme demonstration of God's power in a life. And there is only one force on earth that can eternally change a person's life. The gospel, the power of Christ. And the significance of the revolution and transformation that Jesus brings is that it deals first and foremost with people's hearts. He transforms us from the inside out. And this power, continues Paul, is available for everyone who believes. We were all universally lost in our fallenness, sinfulness and powerfulness. But Jesus died for the sins of the world. And when he died, he died for all people of all races, of all colors, of all cultures. And as the life giver, he offers life to all who would believe there is no longer any distinction or segregation or discrimination. Whoever will may come. So what motivates us to share our faith and, uh, and missions? An implicit belief in the life-changing power of the gospel. So what's the second compelling factor? Number two, the imminent expectation of Christ's second coming and final judgment. Jesus is coming again. And we are living in the last of the last days before his imminent return. The creation we know as time will soon be swallowed up again by eternity. The final judgment is coming. And it will be a day of accountability and reckoning. And for the redeemed, it will be a day of reward. But for those outside of Christ, it will be a day of God's wrath. The final judgment is closer than we think. Let me tell you a story. Though he was a very good young teenage boy, Johnny had an inquisitive mind which sometimes got him into trouble. One night his family went out to attend a function. But Johnny had homework, so he decided to stay home. Like most boys his age, he quickly became bored and his, with his study, and his mind began to wander. And the noise of his parents' chime clock in the living room gave him an idea. He always wondered how it worked and decided that, because no one was home, this was the ideal time to pull it apart and scrutinize its inner workings. Johnny found his father's toolbox, identified the right screwdrivers for the job, and set to work meticulously unscrewing the back of the clock. He dismantled every piece of the clock's inner workings. But suddenly he realized it wasn't too long before his parents would return. Quickly, but not carefully, he tried to put everything back together again. 
However, Johnny couldn't quite remember where certain things and gears of the clock fitted. He did, his, he did the best he could. And thankfully, he heard it ticking again and he went to bed relieved that he had reassembled it into working order, or so he thought. The next morning, Johnny woke to the sound of the clock chiming. He heard it chime eight times and he was comforted because it was eight o'clock in the morning. But to his horror, it continued to chime nine, ten, eleven, twelve. It still didn't stop. And then it went on 18, 19, 20 and 21. And Johnny held his breath as he heard it chime 24, hoping that it would stop. But it didn't. 25, 26, 27. And then he heard his mother's unmistakable voice and she yelled at the top of her voice, everybody wake up. It's later than it's ever been. It's later than it's ever been. So why should the coming judgment of Christ be a vital and powerful factor for missions? Well, on the one hand, it is sobering to remember that Christians themselves will be judged. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment of Christians is not to determine whether we are saved or not. On the critical issue of whether we have eternal life or eternal death, the heavenly court has already decided in our favour. This happened the moment we believe. It was all based on Jesus' work on the cross. He died to bear the penalty of our sin and was raised to break its power. We have nothing to fear. As Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation. But if the judgment seat of Christ is not to determine whether we are really Christians or not, or whether we will get into heaven or not, whether we have eternal life or eternal death, then what is the purpose of the judgment? Well, in essence, the purpose of the judgment is to reveal the true effectiveness and eternal value of what we've done with our lives in Christ. It is the day of accounting for our lives as Christians. And according to the metaphor found in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 10 to 15, all of our works, the things we have done as a Christian will be laid before the Lord. And according to 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, every secret will be brought to the light. Every motive will be exposed. In Weymouth's translation, it is rendered, we will all have to appear without disguise before the tribunal of Christ. The fire of God will come to test the quality of each person's work, to determine whether we have lived our lives for ourselves or for Jesus, to determine whether we have lived for the eternal or the temporal. And this was an ideal metaphor in Paul's day because of the ever-present threat of fire that hung over the ancient cities of the world. Picture a fire raging in an ancient city. And if the dwelling was made of combustible products like wood, hay or straw, nothing would be left but ashes. But if the dwelling was made of incombustible products like gold, silver or costly stones, they would survive. The fire would reveal the quality of the building. And the parallel of this metaphor to our lives is that 
at judgment, the Lord's scrutiny of our lives is likened to the effect of fire on ancient dwellings. The judgment will bring to light just how well or otherwise we have built upon the foundation of our salvation. Some Christians will emerge from the judgment with a lot to show for their lives, whereas others will have nothing to show for their lives. Therefore, we need to ask ourselves, what have we done with our lives since we gave them to Jesus? How have we used our time, money and energy for the work of the gospel? Have we made full use of the gifts and opportunities given to us by God? Many of the parables of Jesus make it clear that one day each of us will have to give an account to God for all these things. At present, we are no more than stewards of his gifts. But listen to what Paul wrote next after mentioning the judgment of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We tried to persuade men. And if then we have any concept of the seriousness of the judgment seat of Christ, we must do all we possibly can to persuade other people about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask the question at the start of this point, why should the coming judgment of Christ be a vital and powerful factor in missions? Well, we saw on the one hand it was because all of us as Christians will be judged, but on the other hand it's because every person who does not know Jesus will one day face the final judgment. And this is extremely serious. Today, people's need before God is often disguised by a comparatively decent, happy, self-sufficient and well-meaning life. Some even believe in God and many are genuinely concerned to create a just and fair society. Their very real spiritual need is not obvious at all. But at the final judgment, the superficial mask will be stripped away and they will be seen for what they really are. In the words of Ephesians 2 verse 12, separated from Christ without hope and without God in the world. In the famous words of Oswald Smith, mankind is divided into the righteous and the wicked with no intermediate class. There is good and evil without any middle ground. There is light and darkness without any twilight. There is heaven and hell without any purgatory. Man must choose between life and death, between being saved or lost. And I am well aware that these either-or statements like this are very offensive to many people. But when we look for the clearest, and for that matter, the strongest teaching in the Scriptures about God's final judgment, we don't find it in the Old Testament, nor in the epistles of the New Testament, but in the words of Jesus himself. Jesus' message was not just one of loving salvation provided by a loving God. He also announced judgment, warning, and he called for people to repent. And the number of parables affirming this is staggering. And in judgment, God merely underlines the decision that we have made about him. Now, of course, Jesus made it clear that the final judgment depends on our response to the opportunities and understanding that we have received. But if I do not want God, I do not have God. And if I want to be on my own, on my own, I shall be. 
But the wonder of God's love is that although we all deserve his condemnation, he offers us mercy in Jesus Christ. And if we reject his love or neglect it, which amounts to the same thing, we have chosen the disastrous alternative, which Jesus variously described as outer darkness, fire, torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And though they are all metaphors, they still describe the awful state of being totally and eternally without God and left to torment. And Jesus took considerable time to set out the alternatives that we face. The final judgment is a compelling, motivating force for missions. And when we really grasp something of the fearful nature of God's judgment, we should be filled with a sense of urgency. We don't want to waste our time with trivial pursuits. We want to use every means and God-given opportunity we have to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And that is the second motivating factor for missions. But what's the third compelling reason for missions? Well, thirdly, the Great Commission. The background of the Great Commission is that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He had suffered, been crucified upon the cross, but was now alive. His redemptive mission was completed. The once for all price for sin had been paid. The way was open for people of all races, of all ages, anywhere, anytime, to come into full and free relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Satan's power, dominion and rule had been irreversibly and irreparably devastated. The world was entirely different. The kingdom of God in all its power had invaded, conquered and now reigned. But the question was, how was this wonderful good news going to be told to a world still living in ignorance, blindness and dominance of sin and Satan? Jesus was about to give the answer. In Matthew 28 verses 16 and 17, the disciples have gathered on the mountain specified by Jesus. And there Jesus appeared to them, but probably at a distance given the context. And overcome by his presence and glory, most worshipped, which should be the most natural response to seeing the risen Saviour. But astonishingly, verse 17 says, some doubted. Then Jesus approached them and said, and here are the famous words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. We know these words as the Great Commission. They are a compelling, irrevocable imperative. And Jesus' last command should be our first priority. The Great Commission is not some task to be pursued, but a goal to be achieved. And let's unpack Jesus' words to see what it means for us and our mission by examining some of the key thoughts. Firstly, he said, all authority has been given to me. The first thing he highlighted was his 
authority. Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Therefore, let us remember that we do not engage in missions under our own authority, but under his absolute authority. We do not conduct mission from a position of defeat, but from a position of victory. We do not go in our own strength, but in his strength with his enabling and empowerment. We do not go alone, but with the assurance of his presence always. For verse 20 says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And listen again to the start of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. Then notice the actual commissioning comes after the therefore. And you know the old saying, if there's a therefore, find out what it's there for. We are commissioned to go and make disciples on the basis that Jesus has all authority. We are called and commissioned by divine authority. We are being sent in and with Jesus' authority. And he said, therefore, go. Our calling is his prerogative, his will, by his authority. We don't send ourselves, we are sent by him. Our calling, is, uh, our calling to the nation is not from people, but from Jesus. There may be a human instrumentality that affirms and facilitates the call, but the call originated in him. But what did he command us to do? He said, go and make disciples. The two words that are the key to understand this whole passage are make disciples. The other commands like go, baptize and teach all flow out of the central command to make disciples. This was Jesus' brilliant blueprint to save the world. Make disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples until he returned. But for some inexplicable reason, the church has largely ignored this imperative. Jesus told us to make disciples. But make disciples of whom? He said, make disciples of all nations. And something that is not immediately obvious about the Great Commission is who we are to go to. Now, of course, we are to try and reach every single person on the planet. But Jesus gave us a clue as to the strategy when he said, of all nations. For most of us, the word nations means countries. Countries refers to political states. But in the original Greek, the language the New Testament was written in, the word ethne is used. Ethne is where the English word ethnic group comes from. Nations actually refers to people groups. This means cross-cultural mission, which we call missions. And friends today, this is part of our mission. This is why we draw breath. This is why we weren't taken to heaven at the moment of our salvation. We are salt. We are light. We are Christ's ambassadors. And Jesus said in John 20, verse number 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Go, bring this life-changing message to your 
friends, family, colleagues, whoever, wherever the opportunity arises. Go, be what I've called you to be. Go, do what I've called you to do. So we cannot stop and we must not stop until every geographical region, country, state, province and district of the world has a gospel witness. We must not stop and we cannot stop until every people group has disciple believers who can bring the gospel message to their own culture. We must not stop and we cannot stop until every city has been penetrated and uplifted by the power of the gospel in our urbanizing world. We must not stop and we cannot stop until every social network and structure is being influenced by the absolute standards of the Bible. We cannot stop and we must not stop until every ideology, whether human or demonic, openly is openly disarmed and discredited by the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot stop and we must not stop until every manifestation and stronghold of Satan has been broken by the power of the risen Lord Jesus. To accomplish this great commission, the Lord has given us His Holy Spirit. God the Father and His Ascended Son sent the Holy Spirit to empower the newly born again apostles and subsequent generations of believers with power to spread the gospel. Jesus' final command for the global evangelism of every culture is intimately linked to the Spirit's empowerment to carry out this commission. May we remember today, we are not alone. We don't do this in our own strength. We receive power that enables us to be his witnesses. So what motivates us in missions in these uncertain times? The Great Commission the Lord has given us to reach the people groups of the world. And now to a fourth and final compelling factor for missions. And number four is the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Allow me to read Matthew 9 verses 35 to 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus was making a circuit of all the towns and villages, and he was going, teaching, preaching, and healing. Verse number 36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. As he surveyed the sea of humanity, his eyes didn't just see the outward facade of the spectrum of respectability right through to poverty. His eyes penetrated everything visible to see the invisible condition of their souls. His eyes saw the inward brokenness. His eyes saw the unmet and deep-seated needs. And as a consequence, the scripture says that he had compassion on them. The word translated compassion means he was moved deep down in his guts. He was moved deep down inside. Jesus saw and he was moved with compassion. But why? What moved him? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or in the words of the New Living Translation, because their problems were so great and they didn't know where to go for help. They were tormented, exhausted, harassed, helpless, confused, hurting. He said, like sheep without a shepherd. 
wandering aimlessly without the direction of a shepherd, vulnerable to the elements, predators and dangers without the protective care of the shepherd, susceptible to sickness with no shepherd to treat or to attend them, unruly without the disciplinary rod of the shepherd, likely to eat or drink poisonous things without the watchful eye of the shepherd. What a parallel to humanity, lost, vulnerable, sick in every respect, tasting things that can only destroy their lives, harassed by pressures, exhausted by the complexities of life, torn by its troubles, wounded by its ruptures, going nowhere, led astray on every false and empty path. Picture Jesus looking at these lives, knowing the fractured state that sin had produced. A parallel to this is a jigsaw puzzle. On the front cover of the box is a beautiful picture. And when you open the box, you see all you have is this mess of jumbled pieces. And as Jesus looked at these broken people, he saw all of the pieces, but he knew the picture or the image, what it was supposed to be. And this is what sin had done and does. It fractures lives. But imagine love welling up within Jesus. Picture his eyes filling with tears of compassion. Try to comprehend his heart, breaking with the deepest desire imaginable to bring healing to their lives. And before we go any further, friends, this is the supreme motivation for mission, to bring the power of Jesus' love to meet the needs of those who are perishing outside of the kingdom. And turning to his disciple, Jesus burst out and said, verse number 37, The harvest is great or plentiful, but the workers are few. And drawing an analogy from agriculture, Jesus parallels a farmer sending out workers to harvest the grain to the need of workers in the kingdom who can minister to the lives of the broken. And when responding to his bewildered disciples after his exchange with the woman at the well, Jesus said, Look around you. Vast fields of human lives are ripening all around us and are ready now for harvest. And Jesus said that the scale of the harvest is immense, plentiful, huge, so great. The sheer scale of reaching, loving, gathering, cleaning, nurturing and rebuilding these broken lives is simply daunting. And in addition, not only is the task immense, but the workers are few. The ratio of harvesters to the harvest itself is so disproportionately minuscule. Few, not just in number, but in respect of willingness. Some are so self-centered they don't even see the harvest. All they see is their own need. Some are untrained. They're not equipped with the right stuff to go, so there are so few. Some are unwilling to sacrifice. And those who are prepared to pay the price and to reach out and disciple people are so few. What a predicament. A massive harvest, but a pitifully minute number of harvesters. So what did Jesus tell his disciples to do? How was his love to reach out to the lost, lonely and helpless people? What was the answer? Jesus said, pray. He told his disciples to pray very specifically. Verse number 38 says, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And we must remember today, it is not our harvest, it is his. 
We have to ask what he wants us to do in his harvest field. What part are we called to play? Is he calling you to pray? Then pray for more cross-cultural workers. Pray for the missionaries you know of and support. Pray for the unreached people groups. Pray for the political scene in the nations on your heart to be conducive to the spread of the gospel. Pray for a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But is the Lord calling you to give more? Or is he calling you to go either on a short-term team or as a missionary? I urge you to identify your harvest field, where God has strategically and sovereignly placed you, where you can be of maximum benefit and service for the kingdom of God. But find out your place in his harvest field. Let me conclude this message with a quick summary and application. We've been looking at four compelling reasons why we should be engaged in missions. And firstly, we saw because of the power of the gospel. The gospel changes people's lives. It brings transformation and hope. Therefore, let's keep sharing the gospel to whoever, wherever, especially to those who have never heard. Secondly, every human being will face the final judgment. And for us as believers, we shall all stand before God's judgment seat to give an account of our lives. And it's not just a judgment of individual good works but the motivation and intent of our lives, how we have lived and what we have lived for. Therefore, we need to relook at what drives us and recalibrate our lives for missions. A third compelling reason for missions is the Great Commission, in which we were clearly mandated to make disciples of the people groups. This too is a clear call for missions. And fourthly and finally, the fields are ripe. The harvest is ready. So we need to pray fervently, passionately and regularly for a great ingathering. Grace, I urge you today to do whatever you can with whatever you have to make an internal difference for missions. God bless you. I mean, there were a lot of words, right? a lot of content for us. So I just want to get us to focus on a couple of things that Pastor Bruce Hills has mentioned. He mentioned a couple of things like, what have we been doing with our lives since we gave them to Jesus? He said, how have we used our time, our money and energy for the work of the gospel? And he also mentioned, have we made full use of the gifts and opportunities given by God to us. Because one day, each of us will have to give an account to God for all these things. You know, missions have always existed. Before Grace Assembly has missions convention, missions already existed. Even if Grace Assembly doesn't have the February and July missions emphasis, Mission still continues. So the question for us is, are we engaged in God's mission every single day? Are we engaged with God's mission regularly? Maybe some of us here, we have 
an apathetic heart towards mission because we think to ourselves, you know what, someone will go. The one that God calls to mission, the missionary or the one who has a, you know, a heartbeat for the nations. And we say to ourselves, you know what, God, maybe it's not me. Today, today maybe the Lord wants to use you. This year will be the year that you start your first missions project. This year will be the year that you start adopting a nation to pray for. This year will be the year where you give your first dollar to missions. We all will have a place to begin. And I think the best place for us to begin is to ask God to do a work in our hearts with regards to mission. What are we doing with the lives that God has given to us ever since we gave our lives to Him? And secondly, for some of us here, we are thinking to ourselves, you know what, Pastor, I, I have a desire for the loss. I have a desire to get involved. And I think I felt it in my heart for a really, really long time already. And this will be the year. This will be the time where I will get involved. And I will tell you that it's not for a lack of uh, opportunities. All of us here, we are like, we're so well-tuned with, with Google. We are able to search for everything. It's not for the lack of opportunities. always whether we desire, whether we want to go through with it or not. So right now, I'm going to ask Pastor Vic to lead us in the time of worship. And as we, sorry, I nearly said sing. As we respond unto the Lord, let's ask the Lord to do a surgery in our hearts because any mission work begins here. Once this is sorted, once this is spoken to, all the actions, all the money, all the involvement, all the prayer that comes out, it comes out because we have experienced God's heart for missions. So why don't we all close our eyes, bow our heads, and let's respond to the Lord together as we sing, as we worship with this song. Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my soul, I live for you alone, every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your way in me, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your way in me. So heal my heart and God. Open up my eyes to the things I see. Show me how to love like you have loved me. And break my heart for what breaks yours. And Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. And as I walk from earth into eternity.
Church, may I just get all of us to just raise our hands to the Lord? Because I believe missions is not just for those who respond. Missions is for everyone. Every single one of us here. And missions doesn't have to begin when we are in front of a Zoom screen with foreigners. Missions doesn't have to begin only when we are on a plane to somewhere outside of Singapore. No, missions begin in our estates. Missions begin with our classmates. Missions begin with our relatives who don't even know Jesus. So Father, with the hands that are raised here, Father, this is our response to You according to Your Word given to us through the Great Commission, through the example of Jesus, through the teaching of Jesus. Missions is for everyone, Lord. So Father, we pray, O God, that today we are reminded of Your heart for missions, that You will give us a desire to share the love of Christ to everyone around us. To anyone around us who does not know Jesus. To an ethnic group that is different from us. To a nationality that is not from Singapore. Father, give us your heart for your people. Because they are your people. And because they are precious to you, Lord, then they are precious to us. And Father, we are praying, O oh God, for the many of us in next gen we are blessed with resources we are blessed with knowledge we are blessed with time and energy and father we pray oh god that we will steward our lives well help us oh god to steward our lives well to serve your purpose to serve your mission oh god so father even as we look at the different things that are happening in grace assembly father would you compel us to get involved by praying for our nation by investing of our time and energy and our money for missions. And oh God, would you allow some of us here, because there are only limited lots in every project, allow us, compel us to get involved with one project this year. Because God, missions begin in our hearts. Mission starts where we are. Mission can start anytime, anywhere. So speak to us, O oh God. We respond to you as one next gen. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Shall we give the Lord a hand? Hallelujah.